Part 2. Convergence. Chapter 10. The planet lay somewhere out in the barren reaches beyond the Quinrock Sound, orbiting a dwindling pair of binary dwarfs. Both stars were dying, one already all but extinguished, slowly collapsing into a pulsar and beaming out its distress as a long and silent electronic death scream to an uncaring universe. Its twin faced its own imminent death with a little more dignity, diminishing quietly but steadily over the long millennia. The stellar heat of its nuclear fires fading and dying, the very substance of its eons old body dissipating and fading away in faint, fiery ribbons into the surrounding void. The world had two remote and distant siblings. Once it had had more, but the fierce, gravetic forces exerted by the binary twins had long since taken their toll, and all that now remained of these worlds were thin garlands of broken rock strung out in long, elliptical orbits around their murderously uncaring parent stars. One of the remaining siblings swung about in an eccentric orbit of both stars, captured in the orbit of first one and then the other, alternately freezing and burning, as the parent stars fought a jealous, gravity-tied tug-of-war over their errant child, each seeking to draw it as close to itself as it could. It was completely uninhabitable, rent constantly by earthquakes, volcanic eruptions and gravity storms, which stripped away whole segments of its ravaged planetary surface. The process of its inevitable destruction was already far advanced, and in time, it too would end its days as a scattered belt of asteroid fields, forever orbiting in mute testimony to its two parents' murderous rivalry. The other planetary sibling was an adopted orphan, a lone cosmic wanderer, really more of a giant meteorite or rogue moon, which had long ago been captured in the twins' eager grasp, and had since assumed an eccentric and wild orbit on the remote fringes of the system, resisting its adoptive parents' insistent but gradually weakening pull, and remaining far beyond both the knowledge of its two siblings and that invisible but fixed point past which no life could ever flourish upon its dismal and barren surface. No, the planet drifted alone, safely secured in a narrow, marginal orbit between its two warring parents, heedless of the fate which had befallen its less fortunate siblings. It had several names in its time, names given to it by the ancient races that had trodden the stars long before the birth of humanity, and which had built their monuments and cities upon its surface. Those races were long gone now. They had become less than the drifting dust, which was now mostly all that remained of those same supposedly indestructible cities and monuments. After these ancient ones had come the Eldar, following in the footsteps of these older races, and seeking to recapture their lost glories for themselves. For a while the Eldar had flourished, achieving many of their highest and most secret aims, and then, in one brief but terrible instant, they had fallen, betrayed by their own hubris and secret, dreadful weakness. After the cataclysm, the ones who were left had mostly abandoned worlds such as this, retreating into their scattered and drifting craft worlds, and often closing and sealing behind them the webway portals which led to these now dead and empty worlds. The planet's surface had known the tread of Eldar feet since then, but these new ones had come like thieves in the night, moving swiftly and in fear, 
where once their ancestors had walked proud and confident. They had entered the halls and homes of their ancestors, exploring them in a manner more akin to nervous and overawed tomb raiders than as presumptive heirs to their ancestors' fallen glories. After the Eldar had come the humans, briefly and almost insignificantly. They had come several thousand years ago, just another explorator team, investigating the surface of another dead and empty world. They had made their studies, measured the monuments, and scratched around amongst the time-worn ruins, tabulated their findings, then had left again with barely a backward glance. Just another dead and empty world, they surmised. Just another one of thousands of such worlds within their Imperium. An Imperium which, unknown to them, had been built in willful ignorance upon the ruins of so many other greater and more ancient civilizations, which had ruled the galaxy long before the Age of Man. Before leaving, though, they had given the world a name, a name which had only recently been remembered for the first time in centuries. Orders from the office of no less a personage than Lord Admiral Ravensburg himself had sent anxious teams of scribes scurrying into the deepest labyrinth reaches of the Administratum archives on Port Moor in search of the urgently required information. The dusty and long-forgotten transcripts of that ancient explorator mission had been successfully found and recovered, and once again, the planet's human-given name, a name most probably assigned to it at random by some bored and now-long-dead explorator scribe, had been spoken aloud for perhaps the first time ever. Stabia, they called it, a forgotten and utterly insignificant world on the remotest fringes of the Quinrock Sound, and upon which was focused the gaze of a select handful of the most powerful men in the Gothic sector, and beyond them, the secret gaze of others, non-human, as well as those who, no matter what they had once been, were now something less than human, was also turned towards Stabia. The world continued serene and undisturbed in its long slumber, but perhaps even it itself was aware of the forces now descending on it. They came through the warp, and through the myriad twisting paths of the webway, racing towards the prize, towards Stabia, towards the moment of convergence, towards the shadow point. Once, long ago, the world now known as Stabia had known the touch of greatness, as the ancient elder races, and those who had sought to follow in their footsteps, had walked its surface and left their hidden marks upon it. Now, and soon, Stabia would know something of greatness once more, for it would be upon its lifeless surface that the fate of the Gothic sector, of hundreds of inhabited worlds, and perhaps the entire Imperium of Mankind itself would be decided. In their cells and reliquies all over the Gothic sector, blind astropath seers consulted the ever-mutable faces of the sacred cards of the Imperial Tarot, and paused in fear and wonder at what they found. In the dome of the Crystal Seers, on far distant craft world Ein Aeusus, where the dreaming souls of dead Eldar gazed forever up through the transparent diamond skin of the dome high above them at a panoply of stars, a faint current of unease breezed through the crystalline forest, disturbing the dreamer's reveries. In his secure and heavily guarded sanctum buried deep within the decks of his venerable battle barge flagship, Harbringer of Doom, Abaddon the Despoiler, listened to the prophecy whispers of his most favoured pet demon things, and looked out into the face of the warp with his chaos-given mystic sight. His plans were well advanced now, 
His allies were not to be trusted, and would certainly betray or abandon him when it best suited their own purposes, he knew. But the factor had long ago been taken into consideration, and the necessary precautions taken. After all, he reminded himself, smiling briefly at the fort, why else would he have entrusted such a task to a treacherous viper such as Syaphus? Still, there were uncharacteristic doubts in the mind of the Chaos Warmaster. The demon prophecies were confused and contradictory, while his own mystic sight could make little sense of the blurred and shadowy future images which moved fleetingly across the face of the warp. Deep down, the Chaos Warmaster was troubled. His demon sword, Dratnian, Hanging on the wall in its jewel-encrusted scabbard of tan-hide space marine skin, sensed its master's disquiet and made a long, keening sound of displeasure. Beyond the void-shielded entrance to Abaddon's quarters, his phalanx of Black Legion Terminator bodyguards heard the sound and looked at each other in apprehension, understanding what it meant. The command would not come from the despoiler for perhaps another minute or two, but already one of the Terminators had activated his Voxlink to the slave decks below to order living flesh to be brought up to feed the sword's bloodthirst and help assuage the Warmaster's mood. Elsewhere, in a place remote from but connected to all other places, other minds and eyes looked at the hidden face of events still to come. They saw the same shadows, the same blurred confusion, but these watchers were unlike those others. They and their kind were masters of the shadows, long at home amongst the dark and hidden places of the universe, and they understood the shadowy images as all others did not. They saw the shape of the future, and they rejoiced at the death and slaughter to come, for it was all that they had anticipated. Or, at least, so they thought. By warp and webway, the players in the coming drama drew closer towards the meeting place. Stabia awaited them, the Fahashokor, the shadow point, awaited them too. As they approached, their fate lines became even more complex and entangled. The many distorted, mocking faces presented by the mystic shadow point to any who tried to divine its secrets now blurred and changed again, the patterns of intersecting fate lines changing by the moment. Perhaps the very oldest of the ones in the Dome of Crystal Seers, the ones whose life memories reached beyond the dreadful time of the Fall, could have understood what was happening. But they were mostly gone now, their spirits completely subsumed within the soul stream of the Infinity Circuit, and their voices had not been heard since before even wise old Caradriel was born. The knowledge was gone now, just another marker on the path of a dying race's slow slide into extinction. And so no Eldar alive in the last few thousand years could have known the secret understood by their forebears. The Fiershoko itself is a trap. It does not hide the future from view, for there is no predetermined future to conceal. Try to penetrate its mysteries, and it will show you the future which most favours you. But the shape of that future is no more real than the phantom images which conceal it. Perhaps Caradriel understood something of the true, dangerous nature of the Shadow Point, but these darker ones, who had fallen far further, and far more terribly than their one-time craft world brethren ever had, did not. And, in their cruel arrogance and conceit, they had already become entrapped by the beguiling falsehood of the Fahasoko. They did not know what the ancient pre-fall Eldar had known. The future within the Fahasoko is not set. 
Anyone within the Shadow Point can, by their own actions, change their future, and that of all others. Nothing is known. Nothing is predetermined. All is there to be won by any of the participants in the coming Shadow Play. In the enclosed shell of his armoured strategium, the crippled human husk that was Erwin Ramus floated in an all-enveloping and protecting environment of synthetic amniotic fluid, surrounded by the myriad of wires, tubes, nourishment feeds and tendril-like mechadandrites which kept him alive and connected to the living world of his vessel. He was asleep, or at least the nearest thing to sleep he would ever know. But while he slept, that part of him which was so intimately involved with the innermost workings of his ship was awake and active. It communed with the Drakenfell's machine mind, browsing through the never-ending stream of information flowing through the ship's mighty logic engines. It assessed surveyor and orspec's readings and kept half an eye on the ongoing status of the ship's weapons and defence systems. It monitored, too, the steady input of information from the ship's non-mechanical components, duty logs and crew assessments from his officers, damage repair updates from the vast teams of ratings still slaving around the clock to make good the last of the damage suffered in the battle against the Greenskins. Meanwhile, as that mind-impulse-linked part of him continued to function, the human part of him slept, reliving the trauma of old battles and old wounds. Enemy contact, 400 kilometres to our rear, and starboard, Sigmuth's balls, look how fast it's coming in. Where the hell were our close-range defence augers? How did he get in so close to us? For perhaps the thousandth time in the last 150 years, Erwin Ramus heard the panicked voice of his second-in-command as it rang out across the bridge of the ship. Votan Camaris, that had been his name. A good enough number two, Ramus had always thought, but too prone to fright and almost certainly never destined to rise any higher in Imperial Navy service than the rank he already held. For perhaps the thousandth time, Ramus turned to look at the image on the bank of auger screens. The image captured upon them was simultaneously beguiling and terrifying. The Eldar ship raced towards them, with its solar sails fully extended, and for a moment the pragmatic Ramus was uncharacteristically reminded of the old spaceman's myth of the vacuum Valkyries, vast angel-like creatures which drifted serenely amongst the scattered wreckage of the aftermath of space battles, gathering up the souls of the dead and dying aboard the burned-out hulks and carrying them off to their earned place by the side of the Emperor. The ominous black moors of the ship's forward-mounted torpedo tubes, however, and the clear and deadly intent with which the vessel bore down on its intended prey gave immediate lie to this particular piece of fanciful spacer legend. Hard to starboard, Ramus heard himself say, for perhaps the thousandth time. Deploy starboard side turrets, Quintus and Octus, and let's give these bastards a good clean taste of lancefire. They were patrolling the trade route circuit between Sikion and Bladen in the Lycides subsector. Nothing too special or demanding, just another routine patrol mission to fly the Aquila Eagle standard across one small part of the Emperor's domain to assure or remind the Emperor's nervous and or potentially rebellious subjects that the forces of the Imperium were still keeping a careful watch over their worlds. The Eldar attack had come out of nowhere, unprovoked and without warning. They had no way of knowing what the alien ship was even doing here, on the fringes of the sparsely populated and unimportant Lamont system. Ramus doubted they would ever find out, because 
As soon as the attack began, it became his firm intention to reduce the Eldar vessel to just so much drifting space debris. Now, as Ramus watched the images projected on his bridge's auger screens, he felt the first stirrings of secret doubts about whether he could make good on that promise. The Eldar ship seemed to flicker in and out of existence, its image actually jumping confusingly from one place to another in space. At times, Ramus saw multiple images appearing around it, often merging and blurring into each other. Whatever damnable alien technology the vessel was using to defend itself, it had the same confusing effect on his gunner's targeting systems as it did on the human eye. Lance beams cut through space around the oncoming ship, probing in vain to find it. Ramus saw one energy beam harmlessly pass right through what he had sworn had been the real target and not one of its phantom afterimages. Ghosts, he thought to himself. It's like trying to fight ghosts. The catastrophe, when it happened, came without warning. As far as Ramus and his officers were aware, they had never even known the Eldar ship had launched any torpedoes. Not until the brace of missiles, moving almost impossibly fast and seemingly undetectable to the Imperium vessel's senses, struck the base of the Drakenfell's command tower. An explosion, ferocious, sudden and terrifying, ripped through the floor of the ship's bridge. Ramus saw his second-in-command decapitated by a flying piece of torn deck plating, and then the blast wave struck him and blew him across the entire deck, smashing him with bone-crushing force against the far wall and impaling him upon the beak point of a gargoyle-faced Atmo Breaver pipe. Incredibly, Ramus struggled for a few seconds to pull himself off the thing before realising, just as a second and more powerful blast ripped up through the gaping hole in the floor, that the effort was futile, since the first blast had removed his left arm and both of his legs. For the thousandth time, Ramus saw the eruption of flame from the torpedo-destroyed decks below. For the thousandth time, he saw it burst across the command deck in a living wall of flame, immolating screaming officers, crewmen and adepts as it swept towards him. For the thousandth time, he opened his mouth to scream too, but all was lost in the hungry roar of flame as the heat consumed most of his lungs and burned away the flesh of his face. His last conscious memory, before he mercifully passed out, before the rescue crews cut their way into the wreckage of the command deck and found him impossibly hanging there barely alive, was of seeing the image of their attacker on a cracked but still functioning auger screen as the Eldar ship executed a graceful, looping turn around its victim and moved off dispassionately towards the system's edge, swiftly disappearing into the blackness of space. They had had the Drakenfells at their mercy, and in their supreme arrogance had disdained to deliver the killing blow. A thousand times he had relived these memories. A thousand times he had relived every moment of the crippling of his ship and the destruction of his body. And a thousand times he swore one day he would exact his revenge for what they had done to him and his ship. Fully awake now, he linked his consciousness into his ship's gunnery systems for the thousandth time, rerunning the unique firing solutions and target pattern equations which he had long ago laid into the ship's logic engines. Trapped as he was in this wreck of a body inside his strategium home, he had had plenty of time and opportunity to prepare for another encounter with the Eldar in the last century and a half, should any of their kind ever cross his path again. Yes, just let the arrogant alien bastards come he told himself, smiling a lipless smile. Next time, he and his ship would be ready for them. 
Prepare yourself, mage. They are coming. Cephas turned at the sound of the Eldar Lord's whispering, sibilant voice. The Chaos Sorcerer, silently angry and alarmed that his mystic senses had not earlier detected the creature's approach. There is still so much I do not know or understand about these things, he fought once more, again questioning Abaddon's wisdom in forming a pact with such strange and unknowable allies. The Eldar Lord stood there in the dim light of the chamber. The surrounding shadows seemed to enfold around him, making him part of themselves. Cephas's chaos-altered eyes and mystic warp-sight allowed his gaze to see far beyond mere human limits. But the shadows in which these creatures so often surrounded themselves defied even his abilities to properly see through. Dark Eldar, he thought to himself. An appropriate name, although one he dared not utter in front of them. The Eldar Lord's name was Kailasa. A Kailasa of the Cabal of the Poison Heart, in the clannish and baroque way these creatures termed themselves. He was entirely encased in armour, coloured dark red, and streaked through with shots of some strange black material which glittered and shifted when he moved, breaking up the shape of his body. Whether this was for decoration or more likely designed for a defensive purpose in battle, there was something the Chaos Sorcerer had yet to discover. Cruel. Mono-molecular-edged blades ran down the seams of the limbs of the Eldar's armoured suit, and one hand ended in an ominous, lumpy metal protuberance, which could variously be, Cypher speculated, even an unfamiliar type of handheld weapon, a mechanised limb attachment, part of the Eldar's armour, or even a combination of all three. The Dark Eldar Lord wore a full closed helm, styled in the same design as his suit. Like many of his kind, Kailasa seemed to prefer to go about his business masked, even here, aboard the relative safety of his own cruiser vessel. Even so, Cyphus could imagine the set of the Cabal commander's features beneath the burnished and featureless face of the helm, his skin pale and taut across his slender Eldar skull, his eyes dark and glittering, full of cruel malice, his lips fixed in a constant and secret arrogant sneer. Cyphus had served several lifetimes in the court of the Despoiler and had travelled extensively throughout the demon worlds of the Eye of Terror at the bidding of both Abaddon and Zarephiston. He thought he had encountered evil and malicious cunning in all its forms, in the inexhaustible variety of the monstrous and degenerate shapes thrown up by the whim of the powers of chaos and lovingly nurtured along and brought to full, abominable fruition by the demonic forces within the Eye of Terror. But these dark Eldar creatures were of a more terrible nature than anything he could ever have imagined. He had seen something of the place Komora, their hidden fastness concealed within the vast, mystic labyrinth they called the Webway, and he was both awestruck and repelled by the cruel depravities which these beings, unclaimed and unwarped by the tainting glories of chaos, could devise using nothing more than their own still mortal intelligence and imagination. Pure hate. That was what they were. He had realised from the time he had spent in their company. Their hate was stellar in its pureness and intensity, directed at a pitiless universe which so uncaringly reduced them to such degenerate circumstances. Hate directed at those who had once been their race kin, and who had not been consumed by the same dire fate which had befallen them. 
and hatred too, directed most terribly and secretly at themselves. Cyphus did not yet know the secrets these dark Eldar creatures hid about themselves and their past, but he knew that they had once been something far greater than the malice-consumed things which they were now. They secretly hated all that they were, and even more secretly coveted all that they had once been, and so they took their pent-up fury out on all other races in the universe. Hate consumed them, and Cephas was sure fear drove them. They were filled with an overriding fear of something, something that loomed vast and terrible over them, blotting out all other concerns. Cephas did not know what the root of this fear was, although he intended to find out, and soon. But already he realised that, in combination with that all-consuming hatred, it was the source of everything which made the Dark Eldar what they were now. Yes, dangerous allies, Cyphus reminded himself, but potentially very useful ones too. These creatures were a weapon, a weapon which in the right hands could advance the one who knew how to wield it correctly to unparalleled heights of power. Had the despoiler made a dual mistake in sending him here, the Chaos Sorcerer wondered. The first mistake was perhaps trying to make an alliance with such beings, but the second was surely bringing in Cephas and these creatures together. The despoiler, in his conceit and arrogance, thought that the Dark Eldar existed only to serve him and his purposes, but Cephas already knew that beings such as these did not comply so easily with the plots and plans of others. Perhaps, the Chaos Sorcerer mused pleasurably to himself, it took a schema of his own intelligence and vision to truly understand the nature of these Dark Eldar, and to realise that, with the correct measure of cunning and manipulation, it might be possible to engineer an alliance of mutual benefit with such as they. Cephas smiled again at the thought. Perhaps, after so many years of dominance, Abaddon the Despoiler was indeed finally beginning to lose his grip, for... How else could he have made the potentially fatal error of delivering so potent a weapon as these Dark Eldar into the hands of one such as Cephas? My lord, Kailasa, the Chaos Sorcerer bowed, displaying all the gestures of false abeyance and respect which had served him so well during centuries of service in the court of Abaddon the Despoiler, while adding an extra and subtle flourish to his body language picked up from his observations of the mannerisms of his Dark Eldar hosts. You are certain of these. I have cast my own auger spells and have seen nothing, although I readily admit my own humble inferiority in such matters, in comparison to whatever scrying methods your lordship and his servants have called on. Behind his burnished mask, Kailasa smiled in amusement. The Monkai sought to use him for its own purposes, he knew. It pleased the Cabal Lord to continue this amusing fiction for the Monkai creature's benefit, if only because it made the end all the more pleasurable when, at the close of the game, the would-be manipulator realised the extent to which he himself had been manipulated right from the very start. We are certain, Kailasa said simply, knowing how much his answer would only further set the Monkai's mind pondering. Your own forces are ready. They are, my lord, said the Monkai, executing another overly extravagant and crudely interpreted flourish. They await my signal. When do we make our move? We allow our enemies to gather. We allow them to get a sense of each other. 
We allow their mutual fears and suspicions to grow. And then, Lord Kailasa. Another bow, another flourish. More ridiculous monkai aping of Eldar mannerisms. Kailasa allowed the question to hang in the air for a few seconds before he finally deigned to answer. And then, mage, we begin the hunt. Chapter 11 My compliments, Semper. You command a fine vessel and lay on an even finer spread at your captain's table. There was a polite ripple of laughter at Pardane's joke as the Admiral crammed another forkful of Stranoverite borscht meat into his mouth. Red juice dribbled down the man's chin and he dabbed at it with a napkin as he soaked up the mirth of his fellow diners. Despite appearances, the fat, aged and ruddy-faced Rear Admiral was nobody's fool. Lothar Pardane, Lothar Rodriguez Ravensburg Pardane, to give him his full name, was uncle to the commander of Battlefleet Gothic. Unlike other members of the vast and disparate Ravensburg clan, such as Captain of the Graf Orlock, Titus von Blocher, however, Pardane owed his position far more to ability and shrewd intelligence than common nepotism. Semper knew his Battlefleet Gothic history, and knew that Pardane, before accepting a senior staff position at Battlefleet Command on Port Moor, had been a highly able and distinguished commander in his own right. His treaties on orbital siege and close-in system fighting were required reading during Semper's days as a young officer. "'I don't know what qualifications you have as a connoisseur, Admiral,' said Semper, lifting his glass in acknowledgement to Pardane and raising another polite ripple of laughter from the other diners. But, coming from the man who commanded the battlecruiser Manifest Destiny during the Vara campaign, and who also carried the day in the Holy Emperor's favour during the Kierkegaard heresy, I shall humbly accept your first observation as a compliment of the very highest kind. Your health, Admiral. Semper downed the glass, full to the brim with the peppery red Cipramundian liqueur, which the rear admiral had gifted to the ship when he first came aboard at Elysium, in one swift motion, choking back the taste which, as a young cadet at Naval Academy, he had quickly come to loathe. The others at the table followed suit. Pardane accepted the toast and then downed his measure in the same way, laughing as he slammed the empty glass down on the table before him. Ha! No matter how long it's been, you don't forget the taste of Raki in a hurry, do you, Semper? Emperor only knows why we in the Segmentum Obscurus battle fleets are required by tradition to drink the damnable foul stuff all the time. I once met a master of ordnance who told me that the Fury pilots aboard his carrier ship mixed it with Promethean fuel from their own fighters for new arrivals aboard the ship to drink at some kind of initiation rite into their squadron. Unfortunately, the man was unable to tell me whether, as I suspect, the resulting concoction actually improved the taste of the original drink. There was more laughter from the other diners, but this time it was more sincere and heartfelt, encouraged all the fervour by Pardane's own bellowing laughter to the punchline of his own joke. The mood round the table, until now stiff and formal, palpably relaxed, and Semper mentally raised another glass to the rear admiral, in appreciation of the adroitness in which the wily old command staffer had broken the ice at the meal. No, Rear Admiral Lothar Perdane Ravensburg, holder of the Obscurus Honorifica, the Order of the Gothic Star Crimson Class, 
and the golden seal of terror was nobody's fool. And it was not difficult to understand why Lord Admiral Ravensburg had sent him along on this mission as his own personal envoy and observer. Pardain crammed in another mouthful of food. Semper had not been keeping count, but believed that the rear admiral was now on his third plateful, and signalled for one of the nearby attendants to refill his glass, waving away the preferred bottle of racky. Away with that devil's brew, boy, he jovially told the nervous young ensign. Find me a carafe or two of Amasac, or some of that agreeable potent Stranoverite spirit, which old Admiral Hassan, Emperor rest his soul, once had the good grace to introduce me to. Uh, search the ship from prow to stern, if need be. I know your captain must have a secret store of the gut stuff hidden somewhere. More laughter, more breaking of the ice. Semper glanced down the table, taking stock of the situation. Elante, seated several places down, was talking to the grey and gaunt Commodore Nayland, Perdane's aide-de-camp. Despite the difference in the two men's ages and temperaments, they seemed to find common cause in both being blue-blood aristocrats of suitably fine and venerable stock. Nayland came from some far-flung line of nobility, which had an impressively tenacious grasp on power in several star systems within the Gafsamain subsector. Nansempa looked forward to a full briefing from his second-in-command on anything relevant to their mission by the Portmore staff officer. Semper assumed that any titbits seemingly dropped by accident by Nayland in the course of casual conversation would be deliberately revealed information coming, in the end, from Pardane himself. Further down the table, Broughton Steyer and Remus Nider exchanged a raucous and increasingly lewd series of anecdotes between themselves as the meal continued and the drink continued to flow, while, seated at the far end of the table, even Commissar Coyagen deigned to exchange a few words with his closest dinner neighbour. Semper tried hard not to stare, struck by the strangely random thought that, up until this moment, he doubted that he had ever seen the relentlessly stern ship's commissar do anything as mundane as actually eating a meal in other human company. Occasionally, Kyogen would look up and glower in disapproval towards Semper's end of the table. Semper, following the commissar's latest frowning gaze, saw the figure of Chief Petty Officer Maxim Barossa standing to attention in full-dress uniform behind where Olante was sitting. If the big Stranoverite was aware of the unfriendly attention of the Macarius's senior ship's commissar, he gave no indication. Semper frowned, sensing coming trouble between the two. He knew something of Barossa's below-decks activities, but feigned to turn a deaf ear to any reports on the subject which managed to reach him. Such things had always gone on aboard the vessels of His Divine Majesty's Imperial Navy. And it was a foolish captain who did not realise that these kind of illicit arrangements if kept within reason, were necessary for the smooth running of any ship and its crew. Also, he was forced to admit to himself he had a grudging admiration for the big hive-world rogue. He had seen the man in action during the events on Bellatis, when Barossa had actually saved his life, and Semper had long ago decided that, even if he were an unrepentant cutthroat gangster and killer, Maxim Barossa was still exactly the kind of man he would want by his side in a tight situation. Still, if Commissar Kyogen was gunning for the Macarius's most valuable and notorious chief petty officer, then that was Barossa's lookout, and Semper couldn't and wouldn't intervene if the Commissar gathered enough evidence to allow him to take typically swift and summary action against Barossa. Mindful of his duties as host, Semper turned his attention back to the rest of the table. 
His other guests, seated on the opposite side of the long table from the Navy officers, were noticeably less ebullient in their conversation habits. Semper imagined that the servants of the Holy Orders of the Emperor's Inquisition were not usually selected for service in the Imperium's most arcane and secretive organisation, with their more garrulous qualities in mind. Nevertheless, Werner Mailer seemed to have struck up a tentative exchange with the Inquisition man seated across from him early in the meal, and now the two men were deep in conversation. Semper recognised the man as Haller Stavka, Inquisitor Horst's chief lieutenant. When the Inquisitor and his retinue came aboard, and even before Semper had been introduced to the man, he recognised Stavka for the ex-arbiter he clearly once had been. The man was in mufti, wearing a plain black and grey body glove and a rough woollen waistcoat. But even without seeing and recognising the tell-tale Justice Eagle Aquila tattoo on his firmly muscled shoulder, there was no mistaking him for anything other than the highly capable and no doubt brutally lethal servant of the Imperium, which he most assuredly was. Inquisitor Horst, seated beside his chief lieutenant and directly across from Pardane, was still predictably much of an enigma to the officers and crew of the Macarius. Tall, thin and greying, he showed all the signs of expensive and subtle rejuve treatment, and Semper could only make a haphazard guess at his age, as being somewhere between sixty or as much as four or five times that figure. He was the typical vidpick propaganda drama image of an imperial inquisitor, right down to the Inquisition skull emblem seal of office, which he wore upon his black mesh-leather coat, even at the dinner table. Semper knew that many imperial inquisitors possessed some form of psychic ability. Semper had the typical loyal imperial servant's quiet dread of those touched by the mystic properties of the warp and the things which lurked within it. Despite this, his position as a commander of a vessel of the Imperial Navy meant that he was frequently forced to consort with psychically endowed Imperial servants, such as astropaths and navigators, and he was aware of the strange and unsettling sense of otherness which surrounded psychers like an invisible cloak. He got no such sense from Horst on the several occasions he had met him since the Inquisitor and his retinue came aboard the Macarius. Nevertheless, it was seemingly some kind of prescient sense which caused Horst to glance up at that moment and catch Semper watching him. Horst held his gaze, sensing a conversational opening. Semper made his play. I trust the quarters you and your staff have been given are comfortable and adequate for your purposes, Inquisitor. They are most satisfactory, Commodore. In return, I trust your officers haven't been too discomforted by having to share quarters for the duration of this journey. Not as far as I know, answered Semper, all too aware of the endless litany of complaints of the thirty or forty of his junior officers who had been evicted from their quarters to make room for Horst and his servants. I'm curious, though, Inquisitor, continued Semper. I admit to having encountered few servants of the Inquisition during my time of service in the Navy, but I wasn't aware that Inquisitors travelled with such large personal staffs. Horst paused, laying down his glass of Amasek. The Inquisition is a broad church, Commander, he answered, looking Semper in the eye. We all serve the same purpose, my brethren and I, although our methods and philosophies may differ. Some philosophies more than others, perhaps, he added as a musing afterthought, taking another sip of the fiery spirit. 
while some of my brother inquisitors travel almost incognito and surround themselves with only the smallest band of followers seconded to their service. I believe that the purposes of the Inquisition and the Imperium as a whole are best served by an Inquisitor's full use of the power and authority invested in him. How many do you have in your personal staff? asked Perdane, joining the conversation. Ordinarily, never anything less than between fifty and sixty at any one time, answered the Inquisitor. But an Inquisitor has the entire resources of the Imperium to draw on, so, when necessary, when I decide that the situation demands it, I have often had good call to second many more than that into my temporary service. He looked again at Semper and Pardane. Many, many more than that, he repeated again, significantly. Both Navy officers could not fail to pick up his meaning. Pardane cleared his throat noisily, then drained the last contents of his glass. Even before he set it back down on the table, the ensign attendant was already starting to refill it. Three capital vessel ships of the line, not to mention two sword-class frigates, and all the attack craft squadrons aboard this very splendid vessel. You do yourself too little credit, Inquisitor. I've known entire planets taken with a smaller, temporarily seconded staff than the one you have under your command here. Padain paused, wiping his lips on a napkin, and gestured towards Semper. The good Commodore here thought he was merely transporting an honoured guest, but now he learns that in fact he was welcoming aboard his new Commander-in-Chief when you transferred over to the Macarius at Elysium. Despite the apparent humour in Pardane's voice, Semper was uncomfortably aware of the Rear Admiral's barely concealed anger at the idea that the naval vessels and their crews might be under Horst's direct command if the Inquisitor deemed such action necessary. Aware of the long-standing historical enmity between the Inquisition and the most senior levels of Battlefleet Gothic command, Semper felt that some subtle diplomacy was called for. As you say, Inquisitor, and like you and your comrades in the Inquisition, we all serve in different ways, but we still all serve the same purpose. My ship, my crew, and my own loyalty to the Emperor are all at your disposal, should you so wish them. Horst nodded in polite gratitude in reply to Semper's words. Pardane followed up with a more measured reply of his own. As is my loyalty. I meant no disrespect, of course, Inquisitor, but I'm sure our good Commodore Semper and his officers would be more assured of the role you perhaps intend for them to play if they actually knew more of the purpose of this mission. Horst smiled. I thought the Lord Admiral's orders were clear on the matter, Admiral Perdane. We will take up rendezvous station in far orbit around the world of Stabia and await further orders. Yes, but who is it that we're supposed to be having this rendezvous with? Fort Semper to himself. He wondered again about the possibility of Horst possessing some kind of psychic ability as the Inquisitor looked over at him and smiled. Patience, Commodore. I promise you'll be fully briefed when we reach the rendezvous point. A junior helm officer entered the dining room and nervously hurried over to Semper, whispering something urgently into his captain's ear. Semper laid down his cutlery, carefully wiped his lips with a napkin and rose to his feet. The other conversation around the table died away. The senior officers of the Macarius looked expectantly towards their captain. 
I look forward to finally learning more about this mission, Inquisitor, especially since it appears it will be occurring even earlier than expected. He looked towards his officers, who rose as one from the table. For the men of the Macarius, at least, the meal was now over, and duty called once more. Gentlemen, our ship's navigator has surpassed himself once more. Our voyage is ahead of schedule, and will shortly be arriving at our destination. Duty positions, gentlemen. We exit the warp in less than one hour. In a series of closely synchronised energy eruptions, the Macarius and its sister vessels burst through the barrier of the Immaterium and re-entered the real universe on the edge of the Stabia system. The Macarius led the way, flanked on either side by its two companions, Drakenfels and Graf Orlok. Two sword-class frigates, the Volpoon and the Mosca, followed in the larger vessel's warpwakes, immediately separating away from the three capital ships to form their own squadron formation. Surveyor and Augustans from all five vessels probed into the unfamiliar reaches of the system, searching for any source of danger to the Imperial vessels. Quickly and one by one, the captains of each vessel received the collected information from their bridge crews. The system is clear, Captain, reported Ulante. No signs of any potential hostiles or any hazards to navigation other than those already charted. Semper nodded and studied the data slate summary of the surveyor scan findings. So, what do you think, Mr. Alante? I think, Captain, that if I were planning to lay an ambush for someone, then this would be the perfect spot to do so. You could hide a Ramilly starfort or two in the electronic backwash from that damned pulsar, and any recently arriving vessels here would be none the wiser from the scrambled surveyor readings it would get back from the thing. Emperor only knows how many ships you could cloak in amongst those asteroid belts. Semper smiled. Agreed, Mr. Ulante. By the time you get close enough in system to see what might be hiding in the petticoats of that pulsar star, then whatever's waiting for you in those rock fields would have had plenty of opportunity to jump out and bite you on the arse. Now Olante smiled. So what are your orders, Captain? We're Battlefleet Gothic, Mr. Olante, came the expected and welcome reply. The best damn fleet and the best damn segmentum in the whole damn galaxy, and we don't turn tail at the suggestion of the possibility of trouble. Indeed not, Captain, said Alante, taking his role in the traditional and well-loved old navy man's joke. After all, that's what the Holy Emperor, in his divine wisdom, created the battlefleets of the Segmentum Solar, Tempestus and Ultima for. Indeed so, Mr. Alante. Signal the battle squadrons, all vessels to continue in-system on their current course and speed. Defence shields raised and fully charged, long-range surveyor scans at maximum powers, any scan anomalies to be reported at once and fully catalogued and investigated. Semper caught the querying glance from his second-in-command. We're Battlefleet Gothic Eater. And that means we don't run away from a scrap, but it also means that we don't go running blind straight into the jaws of trouble like a bunch of overzealous and battle-eager space marines. A sound policy, Commodore, although perhaps it's best for you that there aren't any brethren of the Adeptus Astartes around to hear you express such sentiments. Semper turned, seeing Horst entering the command deck and coming towards him. He was accompanied by his Arbites right-hand man, Stavka, who was now wearing a flak vest and a holstered bolt-pistol harness. With them also was the Inquisitor's other main lieutenant. Semper had only briefly glimpsed the man when he had first come aboard the Macarius, and he had not attended the earlier meal, even though an invitation had been extended to him. Semper tried hard not to stare too much in curiosity, at the glowing circuit patterns 
of electroglyph markings on the man's face and shaven skull, nor at the unfamiliar nature of the man's cyber adaptations. Emperor knows the tech priest servants of the Adeptus Mechanicus were common enough aboard an Imperial warship, especially on the command deck, but Semper had never before encountered one such as this. Officer of the Watch, Broughton Steyer, and his armsmen guards bristled in righteous indignation at the sight of the sidearm openly worn by the ex-Arbites man. It was bad enough that non-naval personnel had entered the bridge without first seeking the captain's permission, but the fact that at least one of them, and Semper suspected that horse rarely if ever went about unarmed, was blatantly carrying a firearm, the most severe kind of breach of command deck security imaginable to the navy men. Semper quelled their indignation with a subtle glance. As with so many other things, this was yet another example of the fact that the members of the Inquisition seemed to operate under entirely different rules than those which applied to the more lowly servants of the Imperium of Mankind. Inquisitor Horst, welcome to the bridge of His Divine Majesty's ship, the Lord Solar Macarius, noted Semper dryly. If the Inquisitor detected any irony in Semper's welcome, he gave no indication. Instead, he indicated the figure of his tech-priest adviser. Commodore, with your permission, I would like my associate, Monomachus, to check your surveyor readings and possibly make some adjustments to your frequency range. Navy captains have been known to throw civilians not just off their bridge, but right off their ship, for such apparent impertinence. But Semper knew that, sadly, such an option did not apply in this case. He acquiesced to the Inquisitor's request with a simple gesture. Monomachus went to work, at the bridge's surveyor section. Anxious and irritated surveyor officers hovered around him, maintaining a suspicious watch on everything he was doing. We've conducted a full surveyor sweep of the system, Semper told Horst, careful to keep any irritation out of his voice. If there's anything out there other than us, we've not found it yet. Horst's reply was smooth and diplomatic. I don't doubt the skills of your surveyor. I don't doubt the skills of your surveyor crewmen or the quality of your ship's technical systems, Commodore. But sometimes it helps to know exactly what you're looking for. Manamarcus was approaching them now, handing a data slate to Semper. Uh, Commodore Semper, with your permission, I would suggest a temporary adjustment of your vessel's surveyor system's frequency range to the following new settings. Semper looked down at the technical data scrolling across the slate's viewing plate, and frowned. These frequencies are extremely low level, and the prime fluctuation vector you're suggesting in these equations is extremely unorthodox. The despoiler's vessels aren't too dissimilar to our own, with a broadly similar power output signature. Anything two or more ratio levels above these figures is enough to detect anything, friend and foe alike, within a radius of at least three AUs. Indulge us, Commodore smiled Horst. Semper nodded curtly to his surveyor officers, who immediately set about making the necessary adjustments to their instruments. The surveyor devices will take some moments to match the recalibrated settings we have introduced to them, warned Monomachus. In the meantime, it will be best if... He broke off, looking meaningfully towards Horst. Tell your crew to be prepared, Semper, said Horst, taking up the warning. Tell them that, no matter what appears on their Orspec screens, they are to take no offensive action of any kind. You can consider this a command, backed by the full authority of the Emperor's Inquisition. And what exactly are you expecting to find out here, 
Inquisitor? asked Semper, refusing to be intimidated on the bridge of his own vessel by anyone, even a senior Inquisitor. Horse did not immediately answer. A few moments later, one of the junior gunnery officers did it for him. Thrown on Earth! There, 18,000 kilometres to our starboard rear. Van Dyer's teeth are practically staring right up our arse! A loud babble of exclamations and oaths from tech adepts and surveyor officers quickly confirmed the sightings. Semper looked at the data images suddenly appearing on the auger screens all around the command deck. He kept his composure, but it took all his will not to react in the way which his every command instinct compelled him to. Eldar vessels, three of them, all easily within striking distance of the Macarius and its sister ships. The newly recalibrated surveyor readings clearly showed the signature of three alien vessels, one capital-class ship and two escorts, keeping perfectly synchronised formation as they shadowed the Imperial ship's course into the Stavia system. Remember my command, Commodore, and pass it on to your fellow captains. No hostile action is to be taken against the alien ships unless they attack first, or unless I command it. Maintain your present course in system, and have your communication officers closely monitor these comrade frequencies. They may have to make some changes to their equipment. If that is the case, then Monomarchus will be glad to show them how. Semper looked at the comm channel frequencies, information on the data slate handed to him by Horst. As with the surveyor settings, the information displayed was strange and unfamiliar, the frequencies at the far end of the spectrum from those used by the Imperium. He handed the data slate to a communications officer and looked speculatively at Horst. I assume, then, that we have just made a successful rendezvous of the parties you were expecting to meet here, Inquisitor. Horst smiled. I understand your concern, Commodore, but if we achieve everything I hope, then what we do today may change the course of the war and save untold numbers of worlds. Erwin Rammers sifted through the stream of new data, flooding into him through the mine link with the Drakenfels. He had received the almost incomprehensible orders relayed from the Inquisitor aboard the Macarius, and like the other vessels in the Imperial formation, his crew had recalibrated the surveyor systems in the same way as the Macarius had. Now the four Eldar ships stood revealed to the Drakenfels' electronic senses, and Semper stood at their detestably alien and unfamiliar shapes, with a detached and coldly cruel interest. It had been more than a hundred and fifty years since he had last encountered the Eldar, but here they were again, cruising through space, well within range of his vessel's lance turrets, like a peacetime flutilla parading before some local planetary dignitary at a ceremonial review of the fleet. Ramus didn't know what dangerous foolishness the Lord Admiral and that damnable Inquisitor on the Macarius had in mind, when they had first come up with the idea for this mission, the Drakenfels and its two sister ships had been dispatched on. But he knew one important thing. The Eldar were not to be trusted. He'd follow orders and hold his fire, but at the first sign of treachery from those Xenos scum, he'd let fly with everything the Drakenfels had. He reached out through the mine link into the ship's matriculators, retrieving his precious firing solution programs. He activated them, running them in a practice simulation, through the Drakenfell's logic engines, his mind flickering back and forth between the simulation and the real-time information relayed to him by the ship's surveyor and all-spec systems. He compared the two data streams, 
and then merge them, using the surveyor-gathered information on the nearby Eldar ships as the new model for the firing simulation. Ramus's equations had been good, he knew, and the logic engine-created phantasm images were fine enough for what they were, but it was always better to have a real target and hard data to work with. The logic engines waged the imaginary battle amongst themselves. Non-existent lance beams cut through an imaginary void to find and strike illusionary targets. Phantom explosions erupted in an intangible battle zone, which existed only in the ship's dreaming machine mind. Ramus studied the results and made the necessary corrections to his firing solutions and targeting equations. He ran the simulation again. This time, he was far more satisfied with the outcome. He smiled his lipless smile. He would follow orders, but he would watch the enemy ships and be ready for the first sign of treachery. When that happened, he promised himself they would find him more than ready and prepared to settle old scores. Somewhere else within the Stabia system, hidden vessels watched and waited. They hid in shadow, cloaked from the senses of the other vessels, even those of the Eldar ships. They monitored the transmission bursts that passed between the two groups of ships. The occupants of these hidden watcher ships could not decode these transmissions, but their meaning was clear enough. Slowly, the two formations split up, spreading out to take up preset positions throughout the small solar system. The remaining two ships, one Eldar, one human, remained in high orbit above the dead world, each of them balefully studying the other as their comrade ships wearily stalked each other in wide, elliptical, picket-guard orbits, their scanner senses trained more on each other than in search of any unknown threat that might be waiting out there for them. Aboard the hidden watcher ships, power and propulsion systems were slowly nursed into life, and the abominable twisted things they carried in their prison holds were roused and brutally herded into their waiting positions aboard bar-proud boarding torpedoes and assault craft. Swiftly, silently, the Dark Eldar ships slid out of their place of concealment, like an assassin's poison dagger being stealthily drawn from its hidden sheath. The hunt had begun. For the first time in millennia, the burning god walked upon the earth of a world. Wherever it walked, destruction followed in its wake. The world itself was unimportant. Once it may have belonged to the children of Ashurian, but they had abandoned it long ago, retreating back to the comparative safety of their craft worlds. Now other lesser races had chanced upon the world, not caring or knowing anything of its previous inhabitants, and in their ignorance and conceit, these new would-be conquerors had built their settlements upon the ruins left behind their vanquished betters. The Burning God was angry. So much of the webway had been lost since it had last walked its secret mystic byways. Passages were blocked off or too unstable to be safely traversed. Whole sections had disappeared or been destroyed. Several times it had been forced to make detours, seeking alternative paths towards its destination via several remote and long unused nodal points. This world was one such nodal point, containing several hidden but still active entrances to the webway. The Burning God had exited the webway several hundred kilometres to the south, amongst the ruins of what had once, long ago, been an Exodite colony. Little remained of the place's delicate wraith-bone towers and shimmering crystalline fortifications, though. Instead, the Burning God had found the place overrun by the planet's new inhabitants, the universal pestilence known as Orcs. 
Foolishly, the green-skinned animals had built their own foul settlement upon the ruins of the Exodite colony, emerging through the hidden webway portal, which, unknown to the orcs, had been active, and amongst them, all along, the burning god had immediately set about showing them the error of their ways. When it left the place, nothing but dead ashes remained. Travelling across the surface of the world, it encountered more of the creatures. Its anger grew with each encounter. Anger at the realisation that all the children of Ashurian had once achieved here had been swept away by the seemingly endless tide of greenskins. Now, reaching its destination, it found that this place too had been colonised by the orc pestilence. The animals seemed to have been warned of its coming and rode out to meet it in battle. They bore down on it in waves of their bizarre and noisome vehicles. They whooped and shouted in excitement, firing their weapons into the air. The burning god met them with the full force of its rising anger. Another wave of gunfire struck it as it stepped through the tangled, burned-out remnants of an orcoid vehicle, crushing the wreck beneath its burning tread. The gunfire increased in intensity. Many of the projectiles, crudely cast metal slugs, vaporised into molten mist even as they struck the white-hot iron exterior of its armoured skin. Other, larger calibre shots impacted against it, although it barely registered the blows. The burning god growled to itself in irritation, turning its glowering gaze towards the source of the gunfire and sent out a blast of glowing fire with one sweep of its rune-carved sword blade. The line of greenskin vehicles exploded in sequence, the mystic fire jumping from one to the other, consuming their screaming crews in a halo of black fire and detonating ammunition stocks and primitive fossil fuel tanks. Orc infantry ran in panic from the conflagration, and were reduced to ash by another sweep of the burning blade held in the god's hand. Their shrieks mingled with the sword's scream as it gloried in the psychic aura of their death agonies. Three more of the orc's crude, smoke-belching vehicles rode out towards it, spinning out streams of rapid-fire projectiles from the swivel-mounted weapons built upon them. The burning god blew one apart with a brief flick of its mystic blade. The next was armed with some kind of flamer weapon, had it been able, the burning god might have laughed at the pathetic futility of the attack as the flamer vehicle's gunner directed the weapon at it and enveloped it in a heavy blanket of chemically produced flame. The burning god strode through the wall of fire and swung its sword, shearing through bike, driver, weapon and gunner with one simple slash. The third vehicle, a rumbling half-track loaded down with howling orcs, bore down straight at it. The burning god braced itself in readiness. The orcs did not realise it, but even if they had had one to use, not even a tractor beam weapon could have moved the avatar from the spot where it now stood. The vehicle impacted against the burning god, completely destroying itself just as if it had run straight into the immobile, immovable foot of one of the humans' great titan war machines. Screaming orcs, Bursting into flames as they came into contact with the superheated air around the burning god, flew through the air amidst the wreckage of their vehicle. The burning god lowered its guard and moved on, walking through the scattered wreckage, the heat of its passing detonating the vehicle's fuel tank and causing ammunition-loaded weapons in the hands of dead and dying orcs to explode apart. More gunfire buzzed through the air around the burning god, the occasional heavier round splattering in a molten mess against its skin. It saw its objective before it, the distinctive conical shell shape of the ancient temple of Ashurian, still visible amidst the desecrating jumble of barrack huts, 
watchtowers and weapon workshops that the orc animals had constructed around it. A haphazardly designed battlement wall ran around the settlement, its single gate made from a section of scavenged space vessel hull, and firmly barred against the burning god's advance. The battlements were lined with orcs, and sweating teams of smaller orcoid creatures laboured to turn a huge, rusty capstan wheel, bringing the wide muzzles of the turret weapons on top of the gate, swinging round towards the burning god. The god spoke, uttering a few sounds which only the most venerable farseers would recognise as being words of power. As it spoke, it thrust its burning blade into the ground at its feet. The earth erupted open, and a blazing line of fire ran towards the gate with preternatural speed. Immediately the orc shouts of triumph and scorn from the battlement walls turned to howls of fear and panic. A few seconds later, the fire line found its target. The gate and large portions of the battlements on either side of it blew apart in an incandescent fireball. The burning god walked on, oblivious to the soil, battlement wreckage, and orcoid remains showering down all around it from the sky. It strode through the cratered hole where the gates had stood. A crude, clanking orc machine thing lumbered forward to meet it. The burning god advanced on it, ignoring the pounding hail of shells and machine's weapon arm which hammered against its iron skin. Reaching the machine, the burning god severed the thing's clumsy power claw limb with one blow from its wailing blade. Sparks and black hydraulic fluid sprayed out from the twitching metal stump, and the machine thing staggered back as if it were in pain. The burning god ran it through with its sword, the weapon wailing with surprised glee as it tasted the flesh of the orc pilot hidden inside the machine. The burning god continued into the orc settlement, killing everything that attempted to stop it. A massive orc in primitive power armour charged at it, roaring in furious anger as it swung a whirring double-handed chainsword round its head. The burning god reached out and grabbed the orc by the throat, lifting it clear off the ground, holding it by one hand. It shook the screaming orc as if it were nothing more than a puppet. The unnatural heat from its hand melted through the stuff of the orc's armour, igniting the creature's flesh. In seconds the creature was ablaze from head to foot. The burning god shook the blazing puppet thing, causing pieces of it to fall to the ground in a rain of fiery gobbets. Finally, it dropped the empty, fire-blackened armour to the ground and continued on. A strange, giggling orc in brightly coloured robes danced and capered before the god on the steps of the temple building, waving a brass knob staff at the burning god as it chanted out a stream of gibberish. The air between them swam with psychic energy, and flickering ribbons of destructive warp power crackled harmlessly against the god's skin. The avatar killed the orc psyker with one fiery glance. The orc collapsed onto the steps, rolling in agony. Smoke and weird-coloured flame emerged from its mouth, nose and eyes as the contents of its skull ignited from within. The burning god entered the temple. It could sense the faint aura of a hidden webway portal buried deep amongst the building's foundations. It would take some time to locate the portal, and more time still to activate and open it. Unhurried and relentless, the burning god continued on its journey. It sensed the events unfolding at its ultimate destination. This detour 
and the unnecessary distraction of having to deal with the greenskin animals had cost it much precious time. Now it was no longer sure it would be able to arrive in time to change the course of those events. Looks like things are heating up. Anyway, uh, thank you all for watching. Uh, as noted before, I've got some uh, you know, real-life family things going on, so there might be some gaps. You might go a few days without getting anything from me. Uh, I'll try and do my best to at least get one video out a week. I'm aiming for two, but at least one. Uh, if I fail at that, apologies. It's just, you know, real life. Anyway, thank you all for supporting the channel. Please do like the video. Subscribe if you're not subscribed. Share this to someone if you think they might enjoy it. And uh, do let me know in the comments as well. Liking and commenting are the best things you can do. That really helps me. I really appreciate that. It really, really does help. Thank you to everybody supporting the channel. Your names are scrolling by here. Uh, thank you ever so much, uh, guys and girls. You really, uh, well, mostly guys, let's be honest. Pretty much like 99%. But that, those girls that are there, thank you. <laughs> but everybody, thank you. Thank you for supporting the channel. Thank you for supporting the uh, my work. And uh, I really, really appreciate it. It really helps. If you'd like to help, uh, there's links in the description. No obligation. But you do need to like the video. And you do need to let me know in the comments what you thought. Okay. I'll see you later. More soon. Bye-bye.